Well, if you were here, I think last time, Pastor Francis mentioned that you know, we'll be transitioning over to Praxis. So um, technically, this is my last official sermon as a part of Beacon, if you want to call it that. Um, but, you know, since this is my last sermon here and as an official part of Beacon, doesn't mean I don't love you, doesn't mean I can't come back and visit or something like that, but... Um, I figure, you know, what, a, what better time to get to know me a little bit than right now, right? So, um, so here we go. So for those of you who don't know me um, or a little bit about the history of my family, uh, my dad was super poor when he was a kid. So he lived in a third world country and at some points in his life, he was totally in the dumps. And he couldn't, sometimes didn't have shoes that would fit him or clothes that, you know, were appropriate or fitting for him to wear. They just, they just didn't have any money. They didn't have any clothing, etc. So, as you can imagine, all of that had a huge impact on him. So as he grew up, as he got older, he was determined not to be poor. So through God's sovereignty and through God's graciousness, my dad worked super, super hard And somehow he made a lot of connections as he was in high school and things like that. And he was able to end up going to Europe to study and get all kinds of degrees and all this kind of stuff. And this is, you know, a long, long time ago before people were doing this kind of thing. Um, So throughout his life, though, he was very, very successful at times. But at other times, he was very unsuccessful. And I think because of his upbringing All of that had an impact on him, and all of that had an impact on the way that he raised my sister and me. So he pushed me to work hard. He pushed me to study hard. He tried to instill those same values in me as I was growing up. Because in his eyes, working hard and just, you know, grinding down to the metal, that's what made him successful. But sadly enough, as I grew up, you know, I I actually hated my dad, and I resented him highly, very much so. And there was a lot of reasons for that, but, um, you know, like the fact that he was never home, the fact that um, when he was home, he was a tyrant. Of course, all of those things combined would lead you to, you know, resent your dad. But another reason that I really resented him was that the fact that I could never do anything to gain approval from my dad. There was nothing that I could do ever that was good enough in his eyes, no matter what I did. Honestly, I don't even recall ever hearing any words of approval, any encouragement from my dad. That doesn't mean that he didn't say anything encouraging or approving of me. I just don't remember them. And I do have a bad memory, but (laughs) that's another thing. I remember coming home one day and I had, you know, my report card. I had a few A's, you know, a B and a C. And, man, he obviously, he was furious. So he was not having that. And I wish that I knew the joke back then that I know today that, you know, you're not Cjian, you're not Bijan, you Asian, right? Like, you know, that would have laughed and it would have been a big deal to have a C, right? So you got it? Okay, good. (laughs) You know, but there was another time, though, that I did bring home a report card, and it was all A's. And there was one A- minus on that report card. And I thought for sure, this is it. This is the time that he's going to be proud of me, he's going to be happy for me, and everything's going to be good. 
But the only thing that I remember him saying was, why do you have an A minus? And I was crushed. I was crushed. I worked so hard to win his approval. I worked so hard to look good in his eyes. All I wanted was his love and his approval, but nothing I ever did was good enough in his eyes. And maybe that's how some of you are feeling tonight or in the past with your relationship with your parents or with the people that you look up to, the people who are authorities in your life. Or maybe that's even how you feel tonight with your relationship with God, that you need to do something. You need to strive in your own strength and keep whatever it is you think you need to keep in order to be approved in God's eyes, to be seen with approval before Him, to know that He loves you. But our passage tonight is going to speak the truth about that into our hearts, the truth of how it is that we are approved, how it is that we're seen in a good light in the eyes of God. So our passage tonight is Galatians 2.15-21, to Galatians 2.15-21. to You have your little booklets or you can look on with a friend if you don't have it. And we'll read the passage and we'll jump into it. It says, Galatians 2.15, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if, in our endeavor to be just justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Now in the first two chapters of Galatians, Paul spent time defending his apostleship before uh, to the Galatians and the fact that he received the gospel as a direct revelation from God. And in chapters 3 and 4, he's going to flesh out that theology even further in his defense of the gospel. But in sections, this section that we have tonight, it's somewhat of a transition point in the letter. Paul declares the gospel truth, and he's seeking to defend it against the attack from the Judaizers and also defend it to the Galatians. So, as we look in our passage, Paul is really quite unambiguous about the gospel message that he's proclaiming and that he's defending. So, if you remember, last time, as Pastor Francis mentioned, the quotation that you see maybe in your Bible there at the end of verse 14 isn't likely where that quotation actually ends. And it probably extends into our passage where we are tonight. And so Paul is still speaking to Peter and of making his defense of the gospel with Peter and to Peter confronting him in Antioch because he was removing himself from eating with the Gentiles, right? That's what Pastor Francis covered with us last time. But, you know, as you guys have studied the Bible over the years and you've learned how to do this, you've, I'm sure you've been told that 
One of the key principles in Bible study is repetition. Repetition is key. And sometimes you'll see these key words or key phrases that are repeated, and that should stand out to you. And that's what we have here in verse 16. Paul repeats himself three different times. Now watch, look carefully again. He says, we are, we'll start in 16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. One. So we have also believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Two, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Three. So it's like saying, this is like if Paul was saying, bro, we grew up as Jews to Peter, right? We grew up as Jews trying to keep the law. We know how impossible that is. Nobody can really keep the law. And now that the gospel has been revealed and fulfilled in Christ, we know that no one else is justified by works. So someone can only be justified in Jesus Christ. We know that. We've believed that. We've been justified by faith in Christ. So we weren't justified by our works of the law because nobody can keep it. Nobody is justified before God through the law, but only through faith in Jesus Christ. So that's the gospel message that Paul was bringing to bear on Peter and also in the situation in Antioch. And now he's bringing that gospel message to bear upon the Galatians in the letter, but also to us tonight as we go through the passage. Now, some of the Judaizers, if you remember, crept into the church in Galatia. They were trying to tell the people in the church that they needed to keep the law in order to be justified before God. But Paul would have none of that. And that's why he wrote such a strong letter to the Galatians, really trying to hammer home this point to them so that they would know and believe and fully stand up for the gospel. Now, you've heard it before, and obviously it's an accurate statement, but... The doctrine of justification is the doctrine upon which the church stands or falls. If you lose the doctrine of justification, you lose the gospel. You lose the church and you lose everything else. So for good reason, Paul is repeating himself here three times in this one sentence. No one will ever be justified before God. No one by works of the law. And the only way to stand justified before God is faith in Christ. So tonight, I want us to think about the doctrine of justification. What is just that doctrine? What does it mean? I want us also to think about how justification by faith is incompatible with justification by works. And lastly, I want us to see some of the implications of living out justification by faith for gospel living in our everyday life. So our first point is justification by faith. What is it? What does it mean? How does it work? So as we saw, Paul is pounding home this doctrine of justification. But what is he talking about? What does that even mean to be justified? And what does faith have to do with any of this? So I think in our circles, it's safe to say, right, that everyone is a sinner. There's not a single person in this room who would say that they're not a sinner and that they've lived perfectly before God, right? Now, God requires us to be perfect because God is perfect. There's no one who can claim to be perfect, and God is the only one who is, and there's no sin in Him. More than that, God would require perfection if we are to enter into His kingdom. Now, from our vantage point, we see that Adam just committed one little sin, But it ushered in, though, all kinds of suffering and difficulty and pain into this world. 
So just that one little sin wreaked all the havoc that we suffer through today. So God requires perfection, but obviously we are all far from that. So how is it then that we, or anyone, can have a right relationship with God? If God is holy and we are sinners, He demands perfection, how is it that any of us could stand rightly before Him and enter into fellowship with Him? That is the vital question for everyone on this planet. This is what determines whether you will be with him for all eternity in heaven or suffering under his wrath in hell. The ultimate question that determines our life, our purpose, and our eternity. Now, at the end of the day, there's nothing more important that, um, than in our lives than our standing before God. So how is it that we stand rightly before him? Now, justification Justification simply means to be legally declared righteous, to be legally declared righteous. So if someone's been justified, that's simply what that fancy word means, that you have been legally declared righteous. It's just like in any courtroom, in any court case, when once it's completed, the innocent person declared in the right, the wrongdoer declared in the guilty. So scripture uses these words in a similar fashion. In fact, um, if you have your actual Bible with you, not those little booklets, in the footnotes, it might say that justified, there's a footnote for that, that it actually could be translated as counted righteous, which is getting at the same idea of being legally declared uh, righteous. So if you've been justified, you're legally de- declared righteous or counted righteous or considered as one who is righteous. So does God just willy-nilly then just declare That I'm a righteous person even though I'm a sinner? Can he do something like that and just let me into heaven? Well, that wouldn't make for a very good judge now, would it? If somebody is a sinner, but the judge just sits there and says, No, no, he's good. It's all good. Turn a blind eye. Go ahead. Go on. Nothing to see here. That, That would not be a good judge. So how do we understand this? How do we deal with this? Enter Jesus into the picture, right? Just like Sunday school lessons, what's the answer? Jesus, right? So, but in this case, it's true. So, so in 2 Corinthians 5.21, you know, this is a really helpful verse for us. It gives us a good summary of how we can understand justification or being declared righteous before God. 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, Jesus, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, some people refer to this verse as the great exchange. And there's a lot of meaning carried in this verse, but part of it is that idea that my sins are counted towards Christ and the righteousness of Christ is counted towards me if I am in Christ. So there's lots and lots and lots of other verses that flesh out this reality. But to summarize, when somebody repents from their sins and turns to Christ and puts their faith in Him, this great exchange takes place. All of the sins that I've ever committed, all of the sins that I ever will commit, all of those sins have been placed on Christ, and He suffered in my place because of my sins. On the cross, under the wrath of God, even though Jesus himself never sinned. 
but he took my sin. If you've believed in him, your sin. He's taken it upon himself and suffered in my place, in your place, on the cross. And all of his righteous life, all of his righteousness is credited to my account. If you've believed in him, to your account. That is this great exchange. It's as if I or you had lived Jesus' perfect life. So now, once I've been justified, God no longer sees me as this wretched sinner deserving of punishment because Jesus has already suffered in my place. But God now sees me as perfectly righteous. Now, how is it that all of that is enacted, enabled? How has it come to, to fruition? It's all through faith in Christ. In Philippians 3, 9, Paul is there and he's writing to the Philippians and he says that he also wants to be found in him, in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Now, this is magnificent, glorious truth that we should go to bed every night under our pillow and just rest well every single night with that. But here it is, the one thing that we so desperately need in life, the one thing we need for eternal life, to be righteous before God, is not something that neither you or I or anybody could ever earn. It's freely given by God to whomever would turn away from their sins and put their faith in Christ. We could never work for it. We certainly don't deserve it. But God gives it freely through His Son, Jesus Christ. Now, this is the reality for everyone, for everyone who has put their faith in Christ. You are now seen in the eyes of God as being righteous. God has legally declared you to be righteous, and you're no longer under condemnation for your sin. Obviously, that has profound implications for our eternity. But it also has implications for our daily living. Now, all of us, every single one of us, every human being on this planet has or struggles with the, the sin of pride. And when we're faced with reality, when we're honest with ourselves, we are prideful people. Now, pride shows up in all kinds of ways and, and shows all kinds of symptoms, like when we complain. And if we're not paying attention... It's easy to turn into a person who complains a lot. Now, why did my boba order get messed up? You know, why can't I get that apartment or job that I deserve? I worked hard for this project. Why is it that so-and-so is getting a better grade than I am? Now, we complain because we're prideful, because we think we're better and that we deserve something better than what we actually have. Because we think we're worthy. We think we're better than other people. But notice, notice how justification by faith absolutely crushes our pride, right? There's nothing that we could ever do to restore our relationship with God. Or keep our relationship with God. It's all of grace and it's all a gift from Him. And remembering that truth, remembering that reality, burying it in our hearts should destroy our pride. Whenever we're judgmental, we see someone else and we're impatient with them. We're judgmental towards them. We're unforgiving. We're condemning of them. 
we should remember how God has justified us, declared us to be righteous, and restored our relationship with Him. Because if you're a believer, if you're a believer and you have seen that the truth of the gospel of being declared righteous is in you, that should change the way that you see yourself. But it should also change the way that you see and treat other people. Now, maybe someone's here tonight and they've never put their faith in Christ. And the reality is, is that if you're not in Christ, you're still stuck under your sins. You're under the condemnation that is justly upon you. And just like it was justly upon everybody. But hear that Christ is calling to you. That you need to repent and turn from your sins and put your faith in Christ. That you might be declared righteous and be welcomed into his kingdom. Be welcomed into his arms because he loves you. God has done all of these things and all of it through Christ. And that's what this doctrine of justification by faith is all about. Again, it's the doctrine by which the church stands or falls. And it's the doctrine that Paul is urgently defending in his confrontation with Peter, but also with the Galatians. Now back to Paul. He goes on in the next few verses and he takes it a step further and he goes into verses 17 and 18 and also in verse 21 to show us the incompatibility of justification by faith with justification by works. That's our second point. The incompatibility of justification by faith and justification by works. So we're going to tackle it one verse at a time. So look at verse 17 uh, with me. We'll do 17, 18, and then 21. As we go through the verses, they can be a little bit confusing, but... The key here to understand these verses is that Paul is going to take up the position of the Judaizers. And he's going to be arguing um, as if justification by works of the law was true. And showing to the Galatians that, look, if you, argue, if you take that justification by works, you'll see that it's incompatible with justification by faith. Okay, So again, Paul is saying, let's assume justification by works is true for a moment. What would that imply? Okay, so let's read verse 17 and 18. He says, But if I were to take that position, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners. Is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if, behold, for if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Yes, this is a confusing verse. So I think the best way for me to try to explain this is to try to um, uh, impersonate Paul, the Apostle Paul here. And I, I think he had a deep voice. I mean, he was a good guy, right? So he must have had a deep voice, right? No? Okay. <laughs> All right, let's try to follow with me, okay? Here he goes. This is like if Paul was, this is kind of like what Paul is trying to say in these verses, but it's just hard to grasp through. But he says, look, if justification by works is true, then Peter and I have been sinning because we haven't been keeping the Mosaic law. Since we've been eating unclean foods, we've been hanging out with the Gentiles, we've been fellowshipping with them. And what's more than that, if justification by works is true, then Jesus is implied to be a sinner too. How? How is that? What? <laughs> well, remember that in the Gospels, Jesus taught us that we were not spiritually contaminated by eating unclean foods, because the real sin issue in our, is in our hearts. The real sin issue is in our hearts. And Jesus also said in his prayer on John 17, that whoever believes in Christ 
is all part of one body in Christ, right? We're all one in him, whether you're a Jew or whether you're a Gentile. So if justification by works is true, then not only have I been sinning because I've been eating unclean food and hanging out and fellowshipping with the Gentiles, but, but Jesus has been a servant or a minister of sin because he led us in that direction. So if you try to argue that justification by works is the way to be justified before God, you're implicating Jesus as leading me into sin. So he says, so you see guys, justification by works is totally incompatible with justification by faith. They don't fit together. Capiche? That's Italian and Paul's Jewish, but anyway, you figure that out. So in summary, justification by works, justification by faith, incompatible. Because we, it would essentially imply that Jesus was leading us into sin. So in verse 18, Paul says that he'd also be a transgressor. Why would that be? Because he's preaching things that would be incompatible, that would be opposite of each other, and they can't be. So one side note that I did want to point out, and I think hopefully this is helpful not just now, but in the long run. That justification, <clears throat> excuse me, the law was never meant to be a means to be justified before God. That was never the law's intention. Now, if it was never the intention, obviously it can never do that, right? If it, the law was not meant to, to make you justified before God, it's never going to accomplish that. And you'll see later in chapter 3 of Galatians, Paul gets into this whole discussion regarding Abraham, and he points out, look, Abraham was uh, justified or counted righteous before God by faith, before the law was even given to Moses. So, seeking approval before God by works of the law will never accomplish that because that's never what it was intended to do. I hope that helps you in the long run. So, okay, we've implicated Jesus as a sinner if we try to take justification by works. Can it get any worse? Can we do something worse by trying to take on justification by works? Well, we've implied Jesus as a sinner Verse 21, I don't know if it's any worse, but it's equally no bueno. It's equally no good in verse 21. Look at verse 21. Paul says, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. And Paul is pretty blunt here. If we're trying to be justified by works of the law rather than by faith in Jesus Christ, then Jesus died for nothing. His life, his death is all pointless. Now, if every miracle he did, every healing he did, every instance of his obedience to the Father, his suffering and agony and his beating that was leading up to the cross, the nails piercing his hands, piercing his feet, the suffering under the wrath of God, his glorious resurrection, all of that, if justification by works is true, is pointless. Jesus died for nothing if justification by works is true, it was pointless because there would have been no need for it. Again, Paul is being pretty blunt. And honestly, it's a well-taken uh, rebuke and point from him. The real, that's the real consequence of trying to say that we're justified by works. Remember, all of this was happening and being discussed here in particular in Antioch because Peter decided to step away from having a meal with the Gentiles. And 
look at all of that that this is bringing up. And Paul is pointing all of this out to Peter that, look, justification by works is totally incompatible with justification by faith. We can't do that. So, justification by faith. Justification by works. I want to do something to get approval from God by doing good works. This is like this. My oldest son, his name's John. He wanted to come tonight, but wasn't able. But he really likes cars. He really likes space rockets and stuff like that that other, I don't know, little four-year-olds like, right? (laughs) So let's pretend that one day I give him a Ferrari. You know, it's fast, it's red, it's loud. What's not to like about that, all right? But John, in his stubborn little heart, he wants to pay me back for it. He wants to pay me for this Ferrari. But again, he's only four years old. He's got no job. He's got no career. He doesn't have any money because mommy and daddy took away his little red envelopes on Chinese New Year. <laughs> so now I get to do that. So, yeah, no, I'm just kidding. So, <laughs> but he insists on trying to pay us back, right? And he wants to pay us back with these little cheapy, plasticky, race car models that he gets every time he goes to visit the dentist. And he's insisting that he's going to pay me back for that brand new Ferrari with these little cheap plastic models that don't even look like a Ferrari. (laughs) But he's striving, he's working so hard to convince me to accept his payment for the brand new Ferrari I just gave him with these plastic little models. And he even keeps saving them up every time he visits the dentist. I mean, obviously, that's, that's ridiculous, right? But that's kind of like us trying to earn our approval before God by our good works. And that's how silly it would look, right? So our insistence on justification by works, whether it's like Peter that was just, you know, trying to do something with this whole meal thing, you know, or whatever it is that you create in your own heart, your own little law, your own little rules in your heart to try to win, you know, approval from God. We, all of us do that. That's how silly it is, right? Justification by works is totally incompatible with justification by faith. Now, Paul has shown us all this. He's shown us justification by faith, the meaning. He's shown us that's incompatible with works. And now he wants us to see the implications of justification that it has for us in gospel living. So verses 19 through 20, this is our third point. Implications of justification by faith for gospel living. So Paul continues in verse 19. For through the law, I die to the law, so that I might live to God. What do you mean, Paul? What does that mean? How is it that you die to the law and live to God? So Paul answers that for us in the next verse with some of the most memorable and life-giving words in the New Testament. Verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, these words are obviously soothing to the soul. Now, if you've ever wanted to pick up biblical meditation, this would be a great verse to begin with. Look at it again. I have been crucified with Christ. 
It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Now the, there's a lot going on in these verses theologically, but there's so much truth and encouragement to live out your Christian life on a practical level as well. And Paul says that I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Now, Paul is referring to what we call in theological terms our union with Christ. And as you read through the New Testament, you'll come across this phrase very often that we are in Christ or that we are in Him. Now, all of those passages are related to our union with Christ and all of, those, all of that theological point entails. But in this particular passage, it's referring to our justification by faith and how it's actually worked out in our daily life. So our union with Christ enables our sins, yes, to be counted as Christ on the cross and His righteousness to be counted as ours before God, but it's more than just our justification. Our union with Christ is what enables and empowers our Christian life. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Now this changes everything about who we are and about how we live. Think about it. My old self. My old self has been crucified with Christ. Whoever I was before, in some sense, doesn't exist anymore. The old condemned me was nailed to the cross with Christ. That person's gone. He's dead. But the new me is no longer just me, but it's Christ who lives in me. Now, what does that mean for your Christian life? Yes, you've been declared righteous before God, but you've still been called to live a godly life, right? We've still been called to grow in Christ-likeness. And we've been called to live in a manner worthy of the calling with which we've been called. But God doesn't just tell us to do it and leave us to our own devices. He dwells in us. He's given us all things that pertain to life and godliness, including himself. Now, there are a lot of things that think about here regarding who we are and the way we live. But do you just plow through life doing whatever it is that you want, sinning in every which way, without a care? No, because you are not your own person. You are not your own. It is Christ who lives in you. Do you have to press forward in all your might, trying to live a perfect life to be accepted in God's eyes? No, because you're righteous in God's eyes already. It's Christ who lives in you. Now, do we mope around grumbling and complaining when things aren't going our way? No. Well, sorry, we do, but we shouldn't. We shouldn't. (laughs) We should be filled with gratitude, even when things don't go our way. Because you have Christ who lives in you. The Son of God, the very Son of God is in you. I'm not making this up. That's what the text says. Christ lives in me. Do you have to strive with all of your strength to live your Christian life? Yes, but you're not in it alone. It is Christ who lives in you, and not only in you, but in each and every believer in this place, each and every believer in the church. 
God hasn't left you on your own to live out your Christian life. He is in you. He's in every other believer. He's in the church body. And we all strive together in his strength, in his power to live the Christian life. So there's so much for us to think about and to praise God for in being justified by faith and having Christ who lives in us. These are eternal realities that we long for and that we hope for. But there's also plenty of daily implications, right? There's, there's a lot. There's a lot. But two, there's only two that I really want to highlight for us tonight. The reality about Christ living in us and helping us in our daily life. Now, the first implication I want us to think about is our identity. Our identity. Now, we've talked about identity before, but I think this is a particular area that troubles us, and it troubles us so much in our life and in our daily walk. And more specifically, I want you to connect the doctrine of justification by faith and the area of identity in your mind and in your heart. Okay, The issue of identity and how you see yourself and how others see you, and even how you think other people see you, can really cause a lot of distraction in your life. And it can even lead you to be paralyzed and you just can't take the next step because you're just stuck there thinking about you know, what other people think about you and your whole identity. And sometimes you know, it can even lead to depression. And we're constantly bombarded right, with media, friends, classmates, professors, colleagues, surveys, polls, media outlets, podcasts, and they constantly bring up what the world thinks about X, what the world thinks about Y, and whatever other topic that's popular. And, you know, they, they don't, they're not afraid to remind you, right? If you're on the wrong side of history, well, then they're seeking to shame you, right? They're seeking to shame you until you join them, okay? So there's so many pressures in our daily life to try to impact the way we see ourselves and the way others see us. And just yesterday, I had to test it out. So I confirmed. I sent Seichi a text. I'm a green bubble, okay, guys? I'm a green bubble. I have an Android phone. I don't have an iPhone. I'm green. I'm not blue. So, you know, it's stressful. It's stressful when you, you know you're that green bubble. I thought it was a good thing, actually, but no, I was, realized I was wrong, clearly. <laughs> um, but, you know, whether it's our job, our career path, Whatever it is that we're shooting for, we're in the middle of that application process. You know, we frequently base our identity on our performance in all of these different areas in our life. You know, we get pressure not only from the outside influence, but even from people that are close to us, people that we love and admire and respect. And sometimes the pressure is actually brought on from them directly, but sometimes the pressure is brought on by ourselves. We tie our academic performance to how we're seen or how we're valued in the eyes of our parents, right? Obviously, that's what I was doing. There's so many ways that our identity or the way we see ourselves is influenced by various sources. So another personal example. So sorry for, I told you you're going to get to know me tonight. So (laughs) another personal example. So some of you guys know and ladies know, you know, I'm a hapa. Anybody know what that means, right? I think... Well, something like that. But <laughs> so Hapa is just a mixed Asian person. At least that's what I remember. It was a long time ago that I studied that. So, <clears throat> all right. My mom is Chinese. My dad is Hispanic, Nicaraguan, Hispanic. And when I was a kid, 
you probably didn't know this, but I grew up in Alabama. <laughs> and I and somehow Ruthann and her family doesn't have a southern draw. But I, when I was a kid, had a southern accent, a southern draw. I was like, y'all, you know. Um, so you can imagine the confusion, right? This little brown boy who's Asian with an Italian name and has a southern accent. Like, what in the world is that? So then I moved down to Nicaragua, and there's, you know, obviously a bunch of Hispanics there. And they're all like, man, like, who's, who's, who's this Asian dude, right? Uh, then I move up here to L.A., and I come and hang out with all the Asian people, and they're like, dude, like, who's this Hispanic guy here with us, man? <laughs> and I was like, so the bottom line, though, is that, you know, nobody wants me on their team, man. You know? <laughs> but, no, thank you, bro. Thank you, bro. Appreciate it. But, you know, like in all seriousness, right, I mean, like, you know, I felt rejected because I wasn't accepted by anybody in their eyes, right? I was always considered an outsider. But now, by God's grace, right, that's no longer true. Because it's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. And I've been declared righteous. I've been accepted in God's kingdom. The Lord welcomes me. Not because of anything that I've done, but because of what Jesus has done. And so my identity is not tied to any of that cultural stuff, racial stuff, whatever. My identity is that I am a child of the King, and I am in His kingdom, and that is my identity. So brothers and sisters, if you are one with Christ, if it is Christ who lives in you, then that is your identity. You are a child of the king, and you are welcome in his kingdom because of Christ. So, again, my identity is not based on my performance to keep a law or academic achievement or anything like that. And what's more is that you know, if your identity actually was tied to those things, it doesn't take very long for that to change. You can lose your job in an instant. You can get injured on the field and lose your athletic scholarship. You know, any number of things can happen. If your identity is tied up with that, it can be gone in an instant. If your identity is tied with Christ, that will last for all eternity. That never changes. Nothing can take that away. So I'm not defined by my relationship with the law. I'm defined by my relationship with Christ. So what are some of the identities that you might be struggling with, that you might be pursuing, or that hinder your daily life? Okay, is it an encouragement or is it a burden for you? How is it, how do those things compare with your identity in Christ? Now the other implication I want to touch on briefly is freedom. Freedom. This is magnificent and such a blessing to realize, but also to live it out because Again, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Now, what kind of freedom are we talking about? Well, freedom from the burden of the law. Right? Freedom from feeling the guilt and the need to achieve something to be accepted in God's eyes. Freedom from the weight and the guilt and the shame of failing to keep the law. There is great freedom from leading... There's justification by faith leads to freedom from leading that legalistic lifestyle where I base my acceptance in God's eyes on my performance to keep a set of rules. Now, maybe some of you have heard about this book called The Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. If you've never read that, I highly recommend you read that. 
but you want to read the modern English version, not like you know the these and the thous and all that, because that I, I can't read that. Pilgrim's Progress um, by John Bunyan in modern English. So he tells the story of this pilgrim. His name is Christian, who's going from the city of destruction to the celestial city because he's been invited by the king. And as he starts on his journey, he's carrying this huge burden of his sin on his back that he so desperately wants it off of his back as he flees to the celestial city. And this stranger he meets, named Evangelist, points him in the right direction and encourages him that soon his burden will be removed. And when Christian makes his way to the foot of the cross and he looks up and his burden is cast off of his back and rolls down the hill into a cave never to be seen again. Well, that's a beautiful picture of what this freedom from sin, freedom from the burden of sin and guilt is. And that's the freedom that we have in Christ. And also the freedom that we don't need to hide or minimize our sins. Right? We don't need to try to make ourselves feel less sinful than we actually are. Right? If we sin, because we're all sinners, and even though we're in Christ, we still sin. If we sin, we confess our sins, we commit ourselves to repentance, we celebrate the eternal standing that we have before God based on the righteousness of Christ. So we've talked a lot about the doctrine of justification by faith and how the, that has implications for our eternal life, but also our daily life. And the last encouragement for us tonight is in verse 20. Verse 20. It says, And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. He loved me and gave himself for me. I don't know where you are in your Christian life. Today could have been the greatest day of your life. Today could have been the worst day of your life. It could have been another ho-hum, regular day in your life, which is probably the, was the case for most of us. But if you're in Christ, you can be most assured that no matter what is going on in your life, no matter where you are in your Christian walk, that Jesus loves you and that he gave his self for you. Now, some of the most encouraging words about justification and Jesus' love for you can be found in Romans 8. So turn over there. We'll finish by reading this passage. Romans 8. Romans 8, verses 31 39. Such amazing words. And Paul says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life 
nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Sometimes I wish I could just stand on a Sunday morning and just read the Word of God all day long to people. God says it best. So no matter where you are in your walk, Jesus loves you and he gave himself for you and he is in you. So I'm going to pray for us as we consider this amazing truth from God's word. And after I pray, then Seichi will come up and, and dismiss us into our group. So let's pray. Dear gracious God, you indeed are a loving king, our sovereign king, who loves us and that you gave yourself for us. Lord, you show your love for us that even while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Lord, help us to really meditate on these truths. Help us not to seek approval from you by our works. But Lord, help us to rejoice in knowing that the righteousness of Christ has been counted to us and that Christ lives in us. Lord, we love you. We praise you. Thank you for this marvelous truth. Bless our time tonight, our discussions, and help us to walk in a manner pleasing and worthy of your name and help us to preach this gospel forevermore on this earth. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.